In his 1989 essay, The End of History, Francis Fukuyama predicted that the wave of liberal democracy cresting over the world at the time would be unstoppable. But today, even Fukuyama acknowledges that democracies can go backward. The reasons are varied and include growing inequality, accelerating globalization, and the displacement and disruption caused by new production and communications technologies. The result has been a political backlash that is upending the international order that has prevailed for the last seven decades. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, please take your seats. Welcome. In this special edition of PS Editor's podcast, our last of the year, we head to London for a conversation with four observers of the disruptive forces that are reshaping our world. Uh, on behalf of Financial News Custom Studios and uh, Project Syndicate, I would like to welcome to this very special event. We have a, a packed program. Recorded at the News Building on December 6th, the discussion was co-hosted by Project Syndicate and the newspaper Financial News, and it marked the launch of our annual magazine, The Great Disruption, which is now on sale at our website, www.project-syndicate.org. Now, when I saw the, the title of the, of the entire event tonight, which was The Year Ahead, The Great Disruption, I thought, oh my gosh, I thought we just went through the great disruption. Do we have another year of this ahead of us? But rather than opine on that myself, uh, my thought was to actually ask each of the panelists to kind of put in their own words what they understand to be the great disruption. The conversation was moderated by Larry Hathaway, chief economist at GAM Holding, and it included Mark Cliff, chief economist at the ING Group, Nairi Woods, the founding dean of the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford, and Lucrezia Reichlin, a former director of research at the European Central Bank and now a professor of economics at the London Business School. We hope you enjoy the discussion. So I suppose in the same order in which I introduced you, Mark, if you want to kick it off with a few minutes, how do you see the great disruption? How do you define it? And, and to some extent, how are you helping your, your, your colleagues as well as your clients uh, deal with the great disruption? Yeah, uh, thanks very much. Yes, well, in, in, indeed, as a, as, a, as a humble economist, uh, I have to say the great disruption started a decade ago. So uh, I think uh, the way I look at this is this predominantly, if you like, uh, uh, a ripple effect of the great financial crisis of a decade ago, uh, which is a predominantly political. And I think, uh, you know, it's a, a good example of path dependency, I think. Uh, in other words, if you think about what's happened over the last decade, it's been a series of unfortunate events, right? So you've had the global financial crisis, which caused immense economic uh, damage. Uh, it led to a revolution, I think, in terms of how policy is being conducted. And we avoided a second Great Depression. It became merely a Great Recession as opposed to a Depression. And that was because of fast-thinking policymakers uh, who, who stepped in, and they abandoned actually some of the uh, Washington consensus in the process, which was, in retrospect, was, was was interesting, particularly on fiscal policy. You think of how, for example, some of the European governments responded at the time, uh, but unfortunately, they didn't do enough. And of course, we had the, this, on, in economic terms, the next big echo was the eurozone sovereign crisis. And uh, that, of course, had uh, further consequences. And we ended up in a situation where we, we had really remarkable, unexpected policy responses. As an economist, I look at this. If you, if you wind the clock back over this last decade and think, had you said sort of 10 years ago, just before the crisis broke, that we were going to have massive quantitative easing, where the central banks are effectively cornering large chunks 
of the financial markets and we were going to have negative interest rates and we're going to have debates about helicopter money, right? So that, you know, just purely in my sort of narrow field of macroeconomics is, is really radical. Um, but I think another aspect which um, I think we could probably talk about it in, in greater detail is the um, coincidence with the technological revolutions that we're going through. And these are general purpose technologies. And these are not uh, technologies that can be easily modeled, right? If you think about digitalization, what's happening here is we are seeing the application of increasing returns to scale, which leads to natural monopolies, winner-takes-all dynamics. And if you look at the corporate landscape, not only has it transformed the tech area itself, but it's transforming just about every sector in the economy. When I go around talking to corporate customers, right, they're all struggling with, what industry am I in? Right? You know, if, if I'm a car manufacturer, suddenly I'm a mobility services company. Um, so, you know, whatever you look, wherever you look in the economy, we're seeing massive uh, disruption of business models and industry sectors. So you bring all of those things together, and of course, the, 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 this, this has actually led to the economic insecurity. And then, in response to that, as the lo losers lash out, we see this big political shift, which is now going to lead to structural changes in the policy framework. And these are not in our economic models. Our economic models do not work. Thank you very much. Peter? So the greatest disruption for you is uh, to run out of business as an economist. So this is basically, yeah, yeah. if I can... Yeah, we've got to reinvent it, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, actually, I'm also an economist. So uh, if I, when you asked me, actually, before the panel, what do you think, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of great disruption? Of course, I think of the 2008 crisis because uh, it was big and because it was, to a certain extent, a surprise. But that doesn't mean that it was an exogenous shock. I mean, it was maybe the symptom of something that uh, had been going on for a while. And uh, the list is very long. I mean, it is uh, globalization of finance, uh, not only globalization of finance, uh, and financial innovation and the, you know, what, what it has meant for, uh, um, you know, for the instability, for financial instability. But beyond that, uh, also globalization of trade technological change uh, and uh, the consequence it had on income distribution, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for us in uh, advanced economies, uh, uh, it has also been a productivity slowdown which precedes the crisis, which is dated more or less uh, around the beginning of the millennium, which uh, puzzling, uh, you know, quite puzzling, uh, has gone together with uh, quite a lot of innovation and technological change. So we have had a slowdown, and at the same time, this technological change which has displaced jobs. And I think this has led to big changes in society, and uh, the combination of that and the financial part has led to instability and the bust of 2008. Then, uh, this is gone, okay, so we are left with the shock, also because we did not anticipate it, we did not understand it, and we are still struggling to understand it. We are left with the legacy, because a lot of the disruption is still with us. 
And also, we have waken up to a wider range of problems, uh, which you call political problems, but in fact, you know, they are political and economic problems, uh, which we don't quite know how to cope with, uh, and therefore, with a narrative which is becoming uh, increasingly pessimistic. I think we have had other big disruptions uh, in the history of the world, for sure, but uh, I call this a disruption because we fail to understand it. And maybe this is uh, whenever you have this sense of, you know, not coping with the narrative, then this is what you call disruption. Okay. Thank you. Hi. Yeah, so, well, I guess in the big 30, for me, there's a 30-year disruption, which is the 30-year consensus about globalization, that, let, that opening markets will, will be great for everybody, about lightening up the role of the state, rolling back the state, um, and sort of imagining that you don't really need your smartest, brightest people in government. You can just kind of eviscerate government and you'll be fine. Um, and then a shift away from thinking about equality of opportunity to thinking just about poverty and 30 years of focusing on poverty and what are we doing about poverty and ignoring what's happening to the bottom 50% of the population which we're now seeing rebelling in every democracy of the world. So to me, the disruption is the rise on the first of those globalization, it's the rise of a serious new nationalism on the left and on the right. And that, will, that might mean the nationalization of, na of national infrastructure, of national resources, as well as some smaller scale nationalizations that we're already seeing in the financial services sector and such like in some parts. On the lightning of the state, countries are looking and they're saying, no, it's, you know, it's, it's China that's, that's, that's doing well. You need good state capacity. And at the same time, they're looking at Facebook and social media and saying, how are we regulating these large monopolies? Where is the government? They're looking at the United Kingdom. And, you know, I think some people in the wake of Brexit said, you know, where was all the cap, where, where is big business? We thought big business was supposed to be controlling government. So what's, What's happening? Um, and in Britain, we've seen, you know, one of my Oxford colleagues, Christopher Hood's done a brilliant look at the lightning of government in Britain, the reduction of jobs in the, in the public sector, always framed as we'll spend a little more now to save a whole lot more later. And the result of the last, 40, of the last 30 years of reform has been fewer civil servants and a 40% increase in cost. Okay, so just think about that. What have we actually lightened? We've lightened competence, but we haven't lightened what it costs. And then, and then on, on equality of opportunity, it's back to health, education, and housing, the very things that Attlee won the 1945 election on, and, and coming back to those and thinking about them. But, but I, I kind of wanted to, I was thinking as I came tonight and thought, this is, this is going to be a bit dismal. This is going to be a so what are the three pieces of really good news of the last year when we look at the global panorama? Can I throw in three pieces of good news so we can kind of, you know. Um, so, because I think there is some, there were some really interesting positive things that are happening. So first, let's think about the countries where Reform is suddenly happening where we didn't think it was going to happen. Ethiopia, Angola, Zimbabwe, South Africa. 
where suddenly there's an opportunity to do something different and there's very credible political leaders who are trying to actually do something different and new. I think that, that's one trajectory. A second is the unlikely coalitions we're seeing form in different countries. In my view, nothing lasting ever gets done in politics when it's just one party. You need to see coalitions that are unlikely in order to entrench policies. And we're seeing those emerge, whether it's in Malaysia or now after the Brazilian election in Brazil. So to me, that, that's a really positive sign. And third, I'm seeing, sitting where I sit as head of a school of government, I'm seeing some of the smartest, most nimble, most innovative people in the world starting to think about going into politics, going into public service. And I think, so part of the reaction to this 30-year complacency about it has been to reinvigorate people and make them realize, actually, it really matters to have high-quality people in government. And we're starting to see at city level, at state level, think about Baltimore and, and, and state stat, think about Kampala, the capital city authority, you know, we're starting to see experiments in a new kind of governance that really works and that's, and that's really bringing about some extraordinary outcomes. So those are my three pieces of good news to, to, to take us forward. Good. So we often think of technology in the same sense you were just characterizing those three items as, as hopeful because technology is something that hopefully transforms our world for the better. But does anyone want to pick up on this idea of technology is actually the great disruptor? I know, Mark, you mentioned a bit in your comments as well. And elaborate on why it is that it's being so disruptive and not productive. Well, I, I think partly for the reasons that I uh, indicated before, because it has these uh, inevitable natural monopoly characteristics. You know, if you look at what's happened with the platform business models, it's pretty hard to think who's the number two and three in some of these markets. You think of Amazon and Google and what have you. Um, and that's, that's to do with network economics. And as I say, this is not something that's in conventional economic models. We, we're, we're used to diminishing returns to scale, not increasing returns to scale. Uh, we've got downward sloping supply curves. So, you know, technically, you know, it's actually really difficult to model this. Um, but, you know, back in the real world, that has a practical consequence, which it, it is a concentration of wealth. And I think coming back to the hopeful side here, uh, what, one is the fact that we are now at the point of takeoff on a number of uh, technologies which will be potentially extremely positive for economic growth. The question is how you distribute the rewards. And I think it's really quite interesting now that you've got sort of Silicon Valley billionaires beginning, beginning to advocate for the universal basic income. And because there clearly has to be a complete sort of realignment of how we run and finance government, because apart from you know, the um, comments that Nairi made earlier on, I think we also need to have a complete reset in terms of how uh, the corporate sector is uh, regulated and how it's taxed to use market signals in a way which is actually for the public good. And um, I think another aspect of this is the tremendous revenue potential that you could get from a smart rethinking of taxation. And so I think one thing which is politically extremely difficult, and you see being literally played out of the streets of France right now, 
is that the cost of renewable energy is, is falling rapidly. Now, when you think about that for a second, that opens up the possibility of massive revenue generation because we cannot afford to have free energy in the sense that what will happen is that during the transition, energy demand will explode and we'll have a, a massive climate problem. So in other words, you need to capture some of that technological dividend through the tax system and use the proceeds to compensate the losers, whether they're the people who are driving old diesel cars or simply people who have low incomes. So there has to be, I think, a much more aggressive uh, attempt to uh, sort out the inequality that we, we, we see behind the great disruption. Obviously, the issue here is diffusion, right? Because, uh, and this is the puzzle that, uh, you know, we have very low productivity growth uh, and, uh, and so there are, there are quite different views about the fact that diffusion is low. One is just that diffusion is long. I mean, the diffusion lives are long. They've been long, long in the first industrial revolution. They've been long in the second industrial revolution. So we will see it at some point. I mean, that's the most conservative uh, explanation. But whatever you think about it, uh, uh, because of what you said about, uh, you know, the monopoly powers, uh, I mean, I think that uh, you have to be, you know, policy has a very important role to play in making sure that, uh, you know, the, 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 the benefits of technology is kind of widespread. And uh, uh, this is for, for the corporate sectors. Now, for what <coughs> concerns the workers, uh, you mentioned basic income, but uh, I really think that basic income is just one part of the story. I think that actually work is very much, is very important for, uh, you know, the kind of self-conscious uh, self, you know, of any individual. And uh, we cannot uh, be in a society in which work uh, is not a big part of it. And I think uh, you can see that uh, in many ways, you know, in the discontent in many of our societies. So I think that there, you know, to think about continuous education and along those lines, I think would be increasingly important. Um, the problem isn't jobs, it's the quality of jobs. It's the quality of work. That's a problem certainly around the OECD countries. And it's the precarious, low-paid, poor-conditioned jobs that are really creating a political revolution, actually. Um, and that people like to blame it on technology and on globalization. They say, oh, you know, it's, it's offshoring and it's, and it's technology that's stealing the jobs. On technology, my colleagues at the Blavatni School working on the Pathways for Prosperity Commission have done an excellent um, full synthesis, which, which sort of pops the bubble on the hysteria about technology and jobs. But the piece that's missing, just mentioned, is policy. It's the, the Resolution Foundation have done a beautiful piece of work which tracks that actually the big, the, the big driver down of quality of work has been failures on the government side to adequately referee the markets. The policies on inflation, policies on labor markets, policies, um, on you know, de deregulation, policies on tax, that that combination of policies has gradually eroded the quality of work as well as, as wages. And that, and that therefore we should be less hysterical about globalization and less hysterical about technology and focus a whole lot more on effective policy. 
And that's a point I actually also wanted to come to, which is institutions and institutional reform. And I might also go now a little bit in reverse order, and I have you start here, given some of the work I think you've done in this space. But I think a lot of the discontent in various countries reflects discontent with their institutions, banks, and, the, and, and those who lead them. Central bankers are obviously now coming under fire, certainly in the United States, in terms of the Trump rhetoric towards the Federal Reserve. And while some of this we may look at it sort of as, as, as the simple-minded backlash of populism against institutions, some of it might reflect areas where there was at least a perception of institutional overreach. Um, if we think about, say, the TARP program, it was categorically rejected in its first instance in 2008 before they went back and, and essentially overruled what was the will of the people, or at least the will of the, that time of the U.S. Congress to, to force it through. So maybe in the context of this backlash against institutions, where's the starting point for now thinking about effective reform so that we build confidence in those institutions so that they can carry out the kind of policies you mentioned a moment ago? So the, the, the backlash that we've been referring to, you all know well. If you take every election in one of the Western industrialized democracies or emerging markets of the last couple of years, the largest majority have voted against any major political established party, right? And that's if you count Macron as having presented himself as an outsider. And if you look at the votes in France for the centre-left and centre-right, Italy, centre-left, centre-right, the United States, you know, the, the, it was, there, was, there was nobody in the Republican Party pushing Trump, not in the establishment party. <laughs> Um, and when you saw the whole British establishment pretty much line up to urge Brits to, to, to vote Remain and for them to vote the other way. So, so to me, what is going on there is that when we look at the polling of those, situ of those populations and we look at their voting behavior, is that they're looking at the political establishment and saying no one in that establishment is on my side. There is no one that I want to vote for that's part of the establishment that is on my side, that's going to vote, that's going to do things for me no matter what. And that's what Trump captured when he said, you know, you're, a, you're, a, you're working in a steel smelter. I'm going to protect you even if I piss everybody off. I'm going to protect you. And the message he's sending is, I'm on your side. Now, his policies and whether they are actually going to benefit those groups is a whole other thing. But it's the, when I talk about the 30-year consensus, one of the political pathologies of that is that all political groups in the establishment move to a kind of cozy <coughs> centre, where suddenly politics wasn't really, apart from politicians competing for position, it became non-ideological. And non-ideological, this nice, easy consensus in the middle actually left huge swathes of the population on either side saying there's no one that looks like me, sounds like me, or is on my side in that government. And so it's a natural kind of on course for what people are calling the new populists. And I think that's the, that's the breakdown. I think there was a part of the last 30 years has been governments saying we must improve public service delivery, we must get management consultants in and re-engineer our systems and we must do it slightly more efficiently. And I think that era is over, that, that kind of incrementalism. And there's, first, there's got to be a redress of the political relationship between people and their governments. And alongside that, there's got to be the capability to do transformational things 
as a government. And that's what people are yearning for. And perhaps no one in this room is yearning for it, but because we live in, many of us, in democracies where people get to vote, and the vote is the one weapon they have, that's how they're exercising their vote. And my expectation of the next year is that that will intensify. That's not going away. And Lucrezia, in Europe, um, part of this, uh, let's say, loss of confidence in institutions has to do with, uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis and Eurozone crises, was the, obviously the severe dislocations, particularly in countries like Greece and Italy, Spain, parts of the Iberian uh, Peninsula as well. And there was, I think, a feeling that the institutions may have served the creditors well, but not necessarily the debtors. And out of that, obviously, there has been a considerable de debate, at least at the academic level, about whether a more complete monetary union also requires a transfer union. Do you, do you want to address the, the issue of European institutional instability in that sort of framework, or take yes, that up I as mean, an issue? Yes, I mean, I think you, you should think of Europe, uh, uh, the problems of Europe, uh, as kind of uh, a mini you know, story about uh, institutions in a globalized world, okay? The more you are together because of uh, trade and finance, the more you are integrated, the more you need to do together. As for crisis management, stabilization, all kind of things. And uh, what happened in Europe is a lot of uh, those things that you have to do together, they are far away. They're in Brussels, or they are in Frankfurt, or the European Central Bank. So you have this kind of imperfect federalism uh, which uh, makes it very easy for national politicians to say, well, it's not our fault, it's their fault, and they are non-elected, and they're a bunch of bureaucrats. And uh, this is what is called the, the undemocratic uh, liberalism. And I think this is, uh, you know, we can say that in, uh, in advanced economies we live in such, uh, uh, in such type of uh, institutional setup. So in Europe, this has been problematic, and uh, I think I want to distinguish the Euro from, from the European Union. In the Euro area, we have definitely understood that we have to do a lot more together, okay? Because if you have the same currency, you are linked by all kind of uh, things, okay? And there is some kind of implicit guarantee that the central bank uh, uh, you know, exercise uh, with the rest of the countries, and this is problematic. Whatever the central bank does uh, has distributional consequences, uh, which have a geographical connotation, and so you know th this is a uh, you know is a channel for tensions. So I think we are on route for doing more together. I see that uh, actually the progress we have made in terms of institutional reforms in the euro are quite amazing if you think about it. But we are just in the middle of the road and. Uh, um, I am relatively optimistic there because I think that there is a will to go ahead with a smaller community of a subset of the EU countries. Uh, it's going to be slow, it's going to be, uh, you know, complicated, uh, but, uh, you know, this is the story of European integration. Oh, I'm less uh, optimistic about the EU because even there we have understood that we had to do more together like uh, refugees policy, security and so on. But that's extremely difficult um, to put together, you know, countries which have uh, uh, the same set of values, the same set of, uh, you know, the same institutions. I'm here thinking about Eastern Europe. Uh, so I can think of the future of something which will have, you know, maybe a more coherent Euro area, maybe with not all its members as they are now, 
and uh, a more flexible partnership at the EU level, which would also be a way for the UK to get back uh, into, into the discussion. And, uh, but, you know, I, I'm not sure that the euro area in its present connotation will remain as it is, okay? So it is possible that some of the pieces will be lost in this process of further integration because further integration requires more homogeneity and, uh, uh, you know, this is an old story in Europe. <laughs> do, you, do, do you mean Italy? I mean Italy, I mean Italy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so is Italy yeah. going to be in or out? I think in the short term we will will we'll be in. I mean, if you think, you know, there is uh, this negotiation, uh, you know, have revealed once again that Europe is extremely flexible, uh, you know, but, um, <laughs> you know, they will digest that uh, this government and this fiscal uh, and this budget. Uh, on the medium term, I'm not sure. Uh, Italy is a country which is uh, uh, in a deep crisis, which has nothing to do with the euro. Is uh, the Italian his the story. It's not the Irish story, it's not the Portuguese story, it's not the Spanish story, it's a, it's a story of a country which had, uh, you know, relatively low productivity growth now for 30 years, uh, which is, uh, you know, terrible demographic, uh, dismal growth, and so on. And uh, so it's like a Japan, it's a massive Japan within mm -hmm. this community, and I don't think that the Euro area can live with the Japanese with a balloon in public debt uh, and very low potential output. So I think that some, some solution will have to be found and uh, it is in entirely possible that um, in 10 years from now, Italy will not be part of the euro area. That's an interesting observation because I think some of us in the financial markets would say that everything that we've just talked about in terms of the great disruption would be child's play relative to a country like Italy attempting to leave the Eurozone. But that's probably another topic for another day and, and hopefully the for a few more days, not, uh, not immediately either. Um, we have a, a few minutes left before I'm going to open up to the floor to questions. What I thought I would do is, and it does pick up on, on, on uh, what Nairi had, had, uh, had, had so eloquently said before, which is to pose the question of, in this age of disruption, where does the hope reside? What, what, what can we look forward to in this very difficult period that we can sort of hang our hats on in terms of the, where the bright spots are and how we're going to get, exit from this into something that hopefully is a more pleasant environment. So Mark, if you might want to take a stab at that first. Well, uh, um, well I, I, I do take a very positive view about the technology in the long run. And I actually, going back to what I was saying earlier, I'm not an advocate of universal basic income per se. I'd just say it's interesting that the Silicon Valley um, billionaires are actually talking about it. But I, I, I'm, I'm very positive about that. I think that's particularly important. Um, and I think that, to me, the, the, the real question is, do we have to go through another crisis to get the kind of realignments that we've been talking about here, and the political realignments in particular, and the sort of reset of governance and regulation? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I do fear that we probably have to have another down leg. I mean, certainly as an economist, I look at this, we've got a very mature cycle, mm -hmm. if, insofar as one can talk about cycles anymore. Um, and, um, you know, it is interesting that populism has risen in the context of actually relatively good macroeconomic results over the last few years. So that, to, mm -hmm. to me, that's troubling. But to coming back to the sort of the positives ar around this, I, I do th hope that we're going to get a, a sort of a, a realignment of the political centre, mm -hmm. which I think is what Nairi was sort of mm -hmm. alluding to earlier. I mean, I was sort of intrigued by what's happening in Germany with the Greens, for example. You know, maybe 
maybe there's something could be really rebuilt around that, that clearly the, the, the existing centre parties are really um, having to go through some kind of major rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to get some new political forces together that actually can get uh, some of this creative reconstruction of the institutional framework uh, up and running. Reinvent the centre is that word. Well, I mean, if I think uh, of, uh, in a positive sense, there is a lot of good news, okay? Less people are poor, more people have access to water, to, you know, to basic uh, to food, to education, and so on. I mean, that's all good. I mean, you said it. In terms of what, uh, for our part of the world, which is something I know a little bit better, of what I think that uh, if any positive thing will uh, come out of this disruption, which, you know, if any creation will come from this disruption, will have to be based uh, on a reinvention of democracy. I think that uh, this idea we have to do more together, but, uh, you know, there are some bureaucrats there that uh, we are going to take a technocratic look and find the solutions is extremely dangerous. On the other hand, we need this kind of institution for cooperation, so we have to find a way in which this is kind of go back <coughs> to the citizens and we give political legs to that. And traditional political parties are dead, so, um, you know, there, is, there has to be another way. And uh, I'm sure that uh, it will emerge, you know, because uh, people are very creative. Larry, I know you gave us three before. Is there a fourth? I think the emergence of parallel institutions is exactly what you need to spur innovation and reform in the existing institutions. It's just that nobody loves that. I mean, nobody, we all believe in competition, but none of us really want somebody younger and smarter coming in on our turf and trying to take over our job, right? That's something that we, 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 we react to as human beings, and so too do institutions. So there's a great big sort of tissue rejection, but at the same time, it drives better performance. So, and I, I, I see, I'm seeing quite a lot of that. So not just at the international level, it took, it took Japan threatening an Asia monetary fund to create the G20 of finance ministers in 1998-99. It's taken the creation of the AIIB to really push the United States to undertake the reforms of the IMF World Bank. It's, you know, these, these, emergent systems, the, the success of city administrations and regional administrations that I spoke about is driving central governments in different countries to really become better and, and be more nimble. So for me, there's a positive story in, in the competition that is slightly alarming to people. So, as promised, we'll open up the floor now. We have 10, 15 minutes to take your questions. So, if you have a question, at least I think you should wait for the mic. Thanks for listening to this special live edition of PS Editor's Podcast with Mark Cliff, Nairi Woods, and Lucrezia Reichlin, moderated by Larry Hathaway. That's all for this episode. I'll be back in 2019 to continue the PS conversation with our contributors and other leading thinkers, analysts, and innovators. In the meantime, be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And to order your copy of our annual Year Ahead magazine, The Great Disruption, with essays from Gordon Brown, Federico Mogherini, Joseph Stiglitz, Angus Deaton, and many others, head over to our website, www.project-syndicate.org. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno. Greg Bruno.